chapter 3, if you want to turn there in your Bibles. 2 Timothy chapter 3, we're learning about Timothy. The, Timothy's um, Paul's associate, his apostolic emissary, it means his pastor that Paul will send to go solve problems in churches that are having trouble as they're getting started. Timothy is having fits and trouble in Ephesus, and Paul is writing his last letter to them, to Timothy, to strengthen him for the work in Ephesus. And we've been, we've been uh, plotting this path, trudging through the life of the Apostle Paul, um, and we're almost finished. We, we may finish the year and finish the study of the Christian life of Paul. That took you through the book of Acts, beginning especially in chapter 9. And then all of Paul's letters as they filled in to the story of Acts. And here we are at the last of Paul's letters. So uh, fond regret as we finish the Christian life of Paul. And uh, so in, in, in the story of the event that Paul is writing about, Timothy is sidelined. He was a successful young student of the Apostle Paul. He was traveling with him. He studied under him and he went, he went where Paul sent him and something happened said many times, we don't know what happened to Timothy, but Paul has to say, get back to work, rekindle your gift. You need to go and operate within the gift that we both know that you have. And so last week we had a little taste of what we call Christian cynicism, where we saw where the world is going in the last days, difficult times or hard times will come because of the nature of the proliferation of man's sinfulness in its, in its self-expression. Now, we're all sinners, right? But we don't aggregate together in uh, corporate sin since Babel, the Tower of Babel. That was why God separated the people and languages in Genesis chapter 11. But the aggregation is happening. And he says it's happening in the last days because the people will be characterized by all these 19 sad descriptions in verses 2 through 4. They'll be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, and irreconcilable, malicious gossips without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And Paul is saying this list of sins is going to characterize the entire human race. That's what the world is going to be like. He doesn't mean that, um, well, we all know that we struggle with these things from time to time. He doesn't mean that there are some people that are just wicked in your community. He's saying it's Genesis chapter 6 stuff that we're headed towards, that the, the thoughts and intents of man's heart were on, continu- on evil continually. And this is, what ha- this, is the, this is the cancer of sin in its popular expression. And here's, I want to demonstrate how you and I are kind of the frog in the, in the kettle, you know, as the, as the pot heats up. We're kind of the frog in this. Used to. Think about what parents could think of, could, could lean on with the culture back in the 50s. In the 50s in the United States, I know that's cliche to talk about the 50s or the 60s. Well, 60s things got interesting. People used to talk about they would never lock their house because they weren't afraid of someone breaking in and stealing or breaking in and hiding with a weapon to, to, to hurt them when they came home. People weren't afraid of these things, and there was not a whole lot of call for locking your door. For example, just for an example, people used to drop their kids off at stuff. Or rather, no, they didn't. They had one car, and they didn't get the car out because the kid would walk 
to their meeting. They would walk to school and they would walk home. And you just kind of leaned on the culture. This is how things were done. Just kind of do what everybody's doing. That's how the culture was. And the culture today that you live in, maybe we've just seen too many movies. But we're not just sending the kids outside. Get outside. Come back in 12 hours. We don't do that with our kids because we don't want someone to get them. (laughs) We don't want them to get lost. Right? It's probably not going to happen, but it could happen. I know of one case in this town where some kids were seen jumping on a trampoline from a, from, from a high-speed road. And a, a predator, some monster guy from New Jersey or Pennsylvania or somewhere was on the road because we got this attractant down here called the casino. And he saw these kids on the, apparently jumping, and he went up in their little residential area to go find where they were. And uh, some, some neighbor... 50s thinking some old school person said this person belong in the neighborhood and they and they challenged him and he was already talking to the kids and they, they some adult got involved pretty quickly and he ran away and they they ran him down happened in this town like right down the street here and it was a near miss because he's gone as soon as he's on the interstate he's gone we don't he's a stranger he's not even from here nobody knows where he's at or where he's been and well you know we just don't have the video camera surveillance set up well enough here right but can you imagine wanting video camera surveillance so that you can keep your kids safe from just other humans i'm just saying the culture has moved the culture shifted we've changed and these this description paul is making you what Paul is describing about what's coming 2,000 years ago when he said this, what he's saying is going to happen in the end, where in the last days, this is going to be the way people are. Listen to that description. It makes us say that if you want to live godly in this world, you can't lean on the culture. If you want to walk with God and be pleasing to him, you can't say, well, what is everyone else doing? Because Paul says this is going to be what everyone else is doing. There are lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful and arrogant revilers disobedient to parents ungrateful unholy this list what what really got me in this list was unaffectionate unaffectionate right and it's it people will be hardened and here's the way this works your sin nature has this almost like a black hole gravity well that will draw you in on you it will draw you in on you. And it will all of a sudden, without even thinking about it, it'll all be about me. It's called the sinful nature. And it's not narcissism so much as humanity, the fall, has produced this sense that I'm right because it's me. And it's all about me. And what are you talking about? That doesn't really have anything to do with me. And that makes us hardened. And, it, and, and you get this description. Unaffectionate in verse 3. Unloving, my translation. Irreconcilable, malicious gossips without self-control, brutal, haters of good. Treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Holding to a form of godliness, although they deny its power. And then this is where Paul says, okay, that's coming where this this is the way the human race is going to be in the last days. He says, but come back now to my time, Paul says, avoid such men. There are people always like this. But there's coming a time in the end where this is the way everyone is. It's going to get worse and worse. You and I are in that process. I don't know where we are in that process. Paul is in that process back then saying you avoid such people. But I have to say, 
that as we get more and more desensitized in our consciences, the more we sear our consciences and we're not sensitive about what, what is right and wrong, the more those that lead us are put in power because they give us what we want instead of they make righteous decisions for what is necessary, what would be best for the national good. The more you, you could just take the temperature based on the, the people we elect to lead us. So it's trouble. We have Christian cynicism, and I ended last week with the Christian optimism. Our cynicism is about the prospects of man. Man's not going to get better. We're not in an evolutionary scale of getting better. The revelation of God says we are getting worse, and the culture, the more our self-love is going to express in this brutality, the more the cancer spreads to the, to the population of the world. This is, this is the, the farther we go, the, the more this is going to happen. And so... We should, we should be cynical about the prospects of man's self-improvement. But we're not cynics. We're not pessimists. We're optimists. Man isn't going to solve man's problem, but the God-man is going to rule the nations with a rod of iron and bring world peace. God the Son in his resurrection is going to come back in what we call the second advent or the second coming of Christ. And the appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ is our hope. And the prospect of the next election is never and it never has been our hope. And whether uh, there are Christmas presents on Christmas morning or whether I have a warm feeling, Davu Dores, Davu Fores, for those of you who know what I'm talking about in Whoville, this is not going to make you happy. It's not going to solve our problems, right? Whether these things happen, this is not our hope. Our hope is in the coming of Jesus. And I challenge you, as Peter says, fixing our hope completely on the Lord, I challenge you to think about what am I looking forward to and take anything that isn't the coming of Christ and put it aside for a second and focus on what God has promised he's going to do with history, with you and me in history. Read Romans chapter 8. In Romans 8, the, the anxious longing of creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. In that context, that's believers in Christ in this day. We will be presented to planet earth in our resurrection with Jesus Christ and that presentation Romans 8, the Apostle Paul says, will free the earth from its corruption, from its enslavement and the, and the curse that's on the earth. And that, what, what we mean is that the natural environment will be healed. And it won't be done through any government initiative. <laughs> It'll be a Daniel 2 government initiative. The, the, the stone that's cut without hands will come and crush the nations, rise up against them, and grind them into dust, and the wind will blow them away. And then that stone, the God, the Son, and the flesh of man, will become a mountain that fills the entire earth. His government will take over the whole planet. That's our hope. That's our destiny. And in Second Timothy chapter 3, we have to be, pardon the expression, eschatological. We have to think about the last things. Now, Paul is constantly thinking about the future and our future hope. He's constantly there in his heart. We are rarely there in our hearts. Part of the reason is because theologians have taken our eschatology away from us and said you can't read the Old Testament prophecies as though they're actually going to happen. Another reason is we just haven't paid attention to the Word of God for whatever reason. We haven't listened to God's Word, and so we're not thinking God's thoughts about what's coming in the future. But if we'll do that, one thing we'll know from the first few verses of chapter 3 of 2 Timothy, we'll think that mankind in his own efforts to self-improve is going to keep getting worse and worse. The more you lean on the culture, the more your hand is going to be defiled by that leaning. Don't do it. 
Stand on the rock that is God and his word. He stabilizes you so that in that culture that you're not leaning on, you can address it. You can speak to it. You can be useful to God in it for those people that need Christ. And that's what Paul is sending Timothy in to do. So we pick it up in verse 10 of chapter 3. Now you followed my teaching, conduct, purpose, faith, patience, love, perseverance, persecution, and sufferings. That's what you call a list. Paul just made a big, long list in verses 2 through 4. Now he's got another list. You followed this aspect of my life in direct contrast to the list of how men are going to be getting worse and worse. Persecutions and sufferings, verse 11, such as happened to me at Antioch and Iconium, Lystra, and persecutions I suffered and endured. Out of all of them, the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. But evil men and impostors will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. So now what do you do with it? In verses 14 through 17, Paul has his sort of summary commands for Timothy before he gets to the big summary in verse 2 of chapter 4. He's going to say, now what do you do? You're not leaning on the culture. You're avoiding the people described as this aggregate cancer of sinfulness and selfishness that's taking over the planet. And then verse 14, you, however, continue in these things that you've learned and become convinced of knowing from whom you've learned them. And that from childhood, you've known the sacred writings, which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. All scriptures inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Second Timothy chapter three, verses 10 through 17 is the alternative is what you do in the face of the fact that the world and all the cultures of the world that have been corrupted by Satan's deception, that the world is going to proceed from bad to worse. Here's what you do. I think it's very subjective for us to say how far along we are in that description. But again, just take the temperature of your culture by the leaders that are being elected to rule us, either side. Look at that list in 2 Timothy 3, 2 through 4. Self-lovers money lovers. This is a self-portrait of our culture. So let's get into it. Let's dig into the woods, the weeds a little bit of what Timothy does. It's not weeds. It's we're going to mine for some gold here. I think we just pan for a little gold reading through it. Now let's dig. Let's excavate the, the load that we found in verse 10. Now you have followed along with me. Does it in the perfect tense, meaning this past experience, you have already followed along with me, Timothy. Now this is the way the world is going to go in verses two through five, but you have followed along with me. You are separate from that domino process, the aggregation of wickedness on the planet as the cultures get worse and worse. You followed along with me in the teaching, the didascalia, in the conduct, the walk that I have, in the purpose that's the mission that the Lord Jesus has given his church. For example, in Matthew 28, 19 and 20 in the faith, either believing or the doctrinal truth that you believe in. That's a question. When you see that word pistis, is it the faith that we believe or the believing itself? And I contend that it is the teaching, the faith, the, the, the body of truth that Paul has delivered for him in the long suffering. That's what you do with the faith is you live it out. In the love, agape, the K 
characteristic, the, the breastplate that defines your relationship with Jesus Christ, that tells the world who you are. The love that is the love of God expressed through you. The love that says, for God so loved agapao, agapao, he loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That love that is selfless and concerns itself for God's interest of, on the other person. That love that says, let's go take some toys to the kids at Waterford Country School. Let's take some cookies to the people in our community that we're sharing the gospel with their kids. Right? That love that says, I'm looking for God's best for you. And here's a, here's a way of showing that. But the real need is eternal life. I cannot give you a cookie to re- that you receive eternal life, but I might be able to have a conversation with you over one that takes you to that point. And that's God's arrangement. If he will so arrange it, you follow me in this Christian walk. This is a better list. This is in Paul's writing here, the alternative the apostolic teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ through these apostles. This is the alternative to that list of the aggregation of wickedness that is the way of the world, that it's tending. It's where it's going. The world is passing away, and so are the lusts thereof. But the one who does the will of God will abide forever. In the perseverance, long-suffering and perseverance are almost the same thing. But let me just show you a little, a little bit of spotlight on this word. Macrothemia is this word, long-suffering. Everybody knows micro means little. 10 to the negative sixth, if you're, if you're uh, an engineer type, a math type, micro. If, but, but macro, some of you know that that means big. Macro's big, micro's small. Everybody with me? This is macro, this is big. And then thumia. Thumos means, a lot of times it means strong passion. It can mean rage. It can mean a strong, good feeling, but it's strong, heavy feeling. In this case, it would be your anger. So thumos, to be hot, And so it's a big anger, (laughs) but that's not what it means. It means that I have a big, long fuse before I get to thumos, before I lose my self-composure, before I am a product of my feelings, in this case, negative feelings, and I give in to anger. Macrothemia is a long fuse. Big, long, you can keep keep hitting me, but I'm going to keep entrusting myself to him who judges righteously as we read in 1 Peter chapter 2 of the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's what that word means. And then hupomone means um, abiding, but, uh, but an intensification of staying put. So that's why we translate it perseverance because it comes from this word to abide or to stay and put in place. So one is the long fuse, long suffering. The other is staying, staying put and, 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 waiting it out. And you can see those are synonyms. They're synonymous ideas, but that's why both of them made the list. There's a little bit of nuance there. In verse 11, the list continues. You have followed me in the persecutions. This is a word that keeps coming up in the context, diagmos. Is it interesting that you have this aggregation of sin that the world is going to, and that we are stuck in this context where that aggregation of sin will result in persecution of those who are representing Jesus Christ? They go hand in hand. The way of the world and the persecution of the believer who is on mission is exactly what you should expect. And Timothy experienced it. And that's one reason Paul is writing this. Timothy has kind of been sidelined through this persecution. You you were following me in the persecutions, in the sufferings. That's what happens when you're persecuted and somebody lands a punch. It hurts. This word where we get the word passion in our English from Pasco, the verb to suffer in Greek, pathema in the noun, his suffering. And speaking of sufferings, did Paul ever suffer? Your place to look up Paul's sufferings in the list form is in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 
Chapter 12 is where he says, there was suffering so bad and so acute that I asked the Lord to take it away. And he said, no, that's a thorn in the flesh. That's 1 Corinthians, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and chapter 12. But he's talking about a specific event or a series of events in his ministry early on when he mentions the sufferings. Now, remember this. In terms of context, Timothy is from the Roman province of Galatia, Lystra Derby, where Paul went in his first missionary journey. I'm convinced that in Paul's first trip that we read about uh, in Acts 13, that this is the place where, Paul, where, where Timothy's grandmother and mother were evangelized. And Timothy perhaps also Maybe he was very little, but that was the point where the gospel caught in that family and Timothy got serious about the word early in Paul's ministry. The Roman province, the southern Galatian region that Paul traveled through in his early journeys. And we read about Paul suffering great persecution in that event. It was so treacherous where he was, so dangerous where they were, beginning in Pisidian Antioch. I ought to show you a map. But in Antioch of Pisidia, as they're coming up, heading into this interior, the Roman Galatian region, they, they had John Mark with them, and he quit. He ran back because it was so dangerous, and they were so frightened. And it doesn't tell you about all that danger. It tells you John Mark left. He abandoned the work. And Paul um, would not take him on the second journey because he had quit in the first one. But anyway, back in those days, as Paul is suffering along with Barnabas, we read about him actually being stoned. It happened to me in Antioch, and that's Antioch of Pisidia, in Iconium and Lystra. And that again is, we'll do the story real quick in Acts chapter 13, 14. So they're healing people. They're preaching Jesus Christ. All right. It's in Acts chapter 14. He has a message. Paul has a long message. Verse 8. At Lystra, a man was sitting who had no strength in his feet, lame from his mother's womb, who had never walked. This man was listening to Paul as he spoke, who, when he had fixed his gaze on him, seeing that he had faith to be made well, said with a loud voice, stand up right on your feet. He leaped up and began to walk. So Paul, the apostle of Jesus, has the healing power of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit is among us because we are doing the works of the Messiah. That's the, that's the sign of this healing event that Paul has. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they raised their voice, saying in the Lycaonian language, a, a, a dialect of Greek, the gods have come, become like men and have come down to us. So see, in a, in a pagan context, they're not th- seeing Messiah. They're seeing Zeus. They're seeing the effects of Zeus and Apollo. And they began ch- uh, calling Barnabas Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. Mr. Mr. Quiet over there must be the one in charge. The one that's doing all the talking, Paul, he must be uh, the, the messenger for Zeus. The priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. But when the apostles, Barnabas and Paul, see Barnabas is called an apostle there, heard it, they tore their robes and rushed out into the crowd, crying out and saying, men, why are you doing these things? We're also men of the same nature as you. And we preach the gospel to you that you should turn from these vain things to a living God. See, the repentance throughout the New Testament is 
that you are turning to God. To turn to God, you have to turn from whatever else has your attention. This is the repentance, the believing in Christ as your Savior that's the change of mind, is the turning to God from idols, for example, in 1 Thessalonians 1. But he says, you turn to God from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that's in them. In the generations gone by, he permitted all the nations to go their own way, and yet he did not leave himself without witness, and that he did good and gave you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even saying these things with difficulty, they restrained the crowds from offering sacrifice to them. So that's the, this is kind of the setup for this incredible persecution Paul's about to have. Sounds like he's about to be, have a party. It sounds like they're about to bring him the fatted calf. And, uh, and they, they did bring a, a bull out to sacrifice to him as, as though these are Zeus and, and, and uh, Mercury, Zeus and, and uh, Hermes. But Jews came from Antioch of Pisidia and Iconium and having won over the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. Stoning had nothing to do with pharmaceuticals. Stoning is they picked up rocks and it isn't the New England thing that they suppose that they put weight on people to crush them. That's not what was happening. They're throwing fastballs at their faces to cause skull fracture. That's what this is. David and Goliath, the killing of Goliath of the rock. That, that, they're trying to kill him with stones. Now it says, supposing him to be dead. My question is, is Paul miraculously resuscitated here or is he just in a coma? Regardless of the answer to that question, he survives. While the disciples stood around him, he got up and entered the city. The next day he went away with Barnabas to Derby. Now what just happened was we heard a, a, a sermon from Paul and then about six or 12 hours of, of, of melee was compressed into two verses. And so it's very tantalizing to me. Lord, can I see the video of that day? I want to see when I get to heaven, I'm going to ask about that one. Can I see what, what were the, what's, what is Luke, Dr. Luke summarizing here? But see, this is the persecution he's talking about. I think he refers to it again in second Corinthians 12, when he says, I was caught up to the third heaven to receive instruction from the Lord Jesus. And I got revelation. I can't even tell you about because I'll exalt myself by saying it. I think this is when. Paul is taught directly by the Lord Jesus Christ. But he says, I was, I was back to our text in, in uh, 2 Timothy chapter 3. This suffering happened to me in Antioch, in Iconium, in Lystra. What sort, and he, he kind of takes a little moment and says, what sort of sufferings I had? It's almost like a, a, an, uh, an aside, like a, an, uh, um, I forget what, what the grammar of that is called, but it's, it's this um, sort of eruption he has to say. Okay. And from all of them, the Lord rescued me from all of these. So he, he blames the Lord for saving him from whatever, from skull fracture. Okay. And from all the other times, and this is, I read you one account. That's the most, um, devastating. I forgot where it was exactly in the text because it's so short. It's so quick that it says they left him for dead, dragged him out of the city. And the other guys are standing around him. What do we do now? That was a great sermon, last sermon. This, this is almost like a recapitulation of Acts 7, where Saul of Tarsus, same guy, Paul, is holding the robes of the Jews who are stoning Stephen to death as he has his great message. Believe in Christ as your Savior, and they kill him for it. See, this is the persecution that you're going to encounter in this world. And why is that? Because there's a war on. 
because Satan, God's enemy, by God's good grace and his design from sovereign uh, eternity past, he is doing something by allowing Satan to persecute us, to corrupt the world, to, to make a, the Bible says he's the deceiver of the nations, to put a, 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 a cloak over the understanding of the people of this world. And he's got a lot of helpers, and they're called fallen angels or demons. We read about it in Revelation 12. He took a third of them along with him. And he has this network, and I don't know how it works. I don't claim to know that Satan is talking to me at some times or another. I don't know how the demons influence us. I just know that there is a war on, and it's a war of ideas. And these people that are gnashing their teeth and trying to kill the Apostle Paul are doing it in order to stop him from saying, Jesus is God in the flesh who died for your sins. That's their mission. So we have a mission to say Jesus is God in the flesh. You died for your sins and there is going to be persecution and opposition. I'm trying to illustrate that what Paul says that the Lord rescued me through these things, but you're with me, Timothy, in the persecutions. Again, that was the first missionary journey. And I think that's where Paul's family or where Timothy's family met the apostle Paul. And they probably knew what he looked like with his face all swollen up. Unless the miracle of resuscitation included God healing his face and, his, and it didn't look like he was, he was injured. But, um, but I suspect if they thought that he was dead, how, how many times do you have to hit somebody as a, as a crowd, as a mob, hit somebody with stones before you think, yeah, they're dead? A mob that is a bloodthirsty mob trying to kill you? I've seen videos of things done to our troops in the Middle East, for example, in... Uh, in Somalia in 1993. I think crowds know when their people are dead that they've killed. Anyway, God, God rescued me out of all of these. I don't want to scare you, uh, but this is the description Paul has of the suffering. So in verse 12, he says, Now indeed, all who want to live in a godly manner, all who want, fellow, desire, in a godly manner to live. Okay, everybody that wants to live the way God wants them to live, in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. I think that's a universal statement that you and I should be ready to face. All who want to live in a godly manner in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Why? I'm just, I'm, not, I'm, a, I'm a lover, not a fighter. I don't want to cause problems. I'm not trying to go into people's houses with my cookie tray and bother them. Why? Will we be persecuted? Because there's a war on. It's spiritual. It's about the truth of God's call on the lives of mankind. And Satan's lie is most clearly taught, most clearly revealed to us in its first interaction in Genesis chapter 3. What Satan does is he lies about the nature of God. He says, for example, he's holding back what you could be. The nature of Satan's attack on God's character. He's holding back. He could make, you could be so much more disregard his word and believe this lie about his character and everything will be better for you. And that's the fall of the human race. And it's with us today. It shows up in our hearts when we say in the situation that I'm in, God is not involved. God doesn't care about me. And this suffering feeling that I'm having is proof that he doesn't love me. That is a satanic lie. And I don't know how the demons communicate to us. The Bible doesn't say it, except when people are demon possessed and they speak. But I know this, 
that the doctrines of demons are alive and well on planet earth, that all the people are deceived, that, I mean, the nations, all the nations are deceived, that Jesus and his temptation by the devil is told, all of the kingdoms of the earth have been given into my hand, Satan says, and they're, they're mine to give to whomever I want. I know that there's a war, and what you believe about God is the battlefield. So if you're one of the people that God is going to use to help people know God and fight that lie, you are on the front line of this war because you are directly opposing the agenda Satan has and his fallen angels to deceive the nations with their lies about who God is. I know that is the nature of the war we fight. Much bigger than that, why is God letting it happen and all the conjecture we could have? That's above all of our pay grades. I just know that the, the, the devil's like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. And all who want to live, uh, in God, to live in a godly manner in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Are you afraid of the persecution? You know what I'm afraid of? I'm afraid of when it comes that I won't put my eyes, my attention on the Lord Jesus Christ and be faithful to him and so honor him with this short little time I have called life. One of the great statements in our founding is, I don't know what, know what, not, I know not what course other men will take, but as for me, give me liberty or give me death. The people that founded this country, to use a secular illustration, believed, and it is a secular illustration, they believed that there were some things worth dying for. And we've softened and we've forgotten that largely. Better red than dead <laughs> seems to be a way a lot of people think today. There are things worth dying for. I regret that I have but one life to give for my country. Well, that's just patriotism. That's just for temporal, like so that the kids and grandkids can have freedom. What about, what about to honor my creator forever and ever with the short time I have on this life? You're going to be persecuted. It's inevitable. You might be persecuted like Paul was, where you actually are called on to, to die for your faith. But I believe that we're all dying a little bit as we live every single day. And the way to, to rise to this occasion is to say, today, I'm going to live for the Lord. Today, I'm going to be about his work. Despite the persecution today, I'm going to trust him. And it is so sweet to trust in Jesus. But evil men and imposters will proceed in worsening. My English Bible puts an, uh, an, an American paraphrase, proceed from bad to worse. It'll go from bad to worse. That's fine. But it just means that they will proceed in getting worse, deceiving and being deceived. Deceiving because they've been deceived. Now, this is interesting. The human beings that are the people throwing the stones are deceived people. They are absolutely certain that this is immoral, what Paul is saying, and he must be destroyed for saying it. They're certain of it. They're 100% certain of something that's 180 degrees out of phase with the truth. They're exactly 100% wrong, but they're 100% certain. It's a crazy world we live in. It happens a lot. And I have all kinds of secular political illustrations I could share with you. But the point is, the reason these people deceive, the reason they pass on the lie, is that they themselves have been deceived. And they're saying what they've been taught. Now I'd like to talk about Ivy League education and the closing of the American mind as an illustration. We're not taught to critically think in college anymore. In our higher institutions of learning, they're taught to say what we say. This is how we talk about it. And it's, it's, it's a pandemic. 
But you, in contrast, now we'll apply it. Oh, I don't want to look at the problem anymore. Give me some solutions. You, remain, hold fast, stick, stick in place. This is the word minnow, and it's a, a present imperative, and it's a command that Paul says, I put it in red, you hold fast, or you remain in the things you've learned of and been, and been convinced of. Now, we've told you what the world is going to do. It's going to persecute you. We've told you what it's like. It's all these categories of, of self-love and, and love of money and, and, and from bad to worse. We've told you what the world is. All right? We've told you you're going to be persecuted by how it's going to affect you. Now, what do you do? Anybody have any idea what Paul is going to say you need to do? Let me summarize it with hold fast to the word of God. It's not just stick fast with your convictions. It's stick fast with the scriptures. It's very interesting. We are all nails and the Bible is a hammer. It is the solution to our particular problem of ignorance of God and a lack of communion with him. It is the answer. So he's going to say the things you've learned of and learned and been convinced of, you remain in these things knowing from whom you learned them. Now, this is interesting. He could say, I mean, me, you know me, I'm solid. But I think Paul means the source that Paul got it from. You learned these things because the spirit of God has been working in me and he's been working in you and you know them because God has mediated them to you. Like in first Corinthians chapter two, knowing from whom you've learned these things and that from childhood you've known the holy writings. See, we go from the personal relationship, you know, who taught you these things to the objective source of of that fuel for that personal relationship. The father has communicated with you. You have known from childhood, the holy writings, which are able to make you wise unto salvation. You were a little kid and I came through and I shared the scriptures with you. He's his mother's Jewish. His father's Gentile. This is Timothy. No doubt she is sharing as a Jewish Christian. Now she's sharing the old Testament with him growing up. So this is a great picture of motherhood which we've talked about. And you've known about the word from childhood. So you hang, hang with it, hold fast to it. These writings are able to give you, to make you wise unto salvation. And the way you get this salvation is through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. Beloved, how do you get the life God wants you to have? You don't get it from reading the Bible. You get it from, if you read the Bible, taking what it says and believing it about Jesus, that he died for your sins and rose from the dead. It is your faith that is your responsibility. And it is God's work of saving you that is his responsibility. And what you need to do with the truth that Jesus Christ came in the flesh to die for your sins is you need to trust in him. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. So there's Acts 16, 31, or as we used to say in my household, Acts 10, 31. We taught our kids from the youngest possible age to say, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. You and your household. Oh, the home videos I could show you. And then you have one of our mottos as a church family in 2 Timothy 3, 16. I've saved the last 10 minutes to regale you with as close. And no, I'm just kidding. It's, it's a very clear passage. All scriptures, God breathed and profitable for doctrine, proof, correction. A couple of things I want to show you about this. He says, pasa grafe thepnustas. And that means all or every, it's in the singular grafe, every written thing, every writing, every scripture. Now it's not a huge difference between all scripture, like the whole of the Bible or every writing in the Bible. So is it every word or is it all the words? 
I mean, I took math, right? It's, if it's one, it's the other. If it's all the words, then it's every word. And that's what we believe about the Bible. We talked about this first hour a couple of weeks ago. We think that every word of the scriptures is given by God as, he, as though he's exhaling it. It's from his life to the writing of scripture. That's what it is. How did it get from God breathed to the pen of the apostles and prophets? Many different ways. Sometimes by dictation. Sometimes God tells Moses, write this down. Sometimes in, in, on the occasion, Paul wants to get to a place like Corinth and he can't get there. So he has to write him a letter. But it's by inspiration of God. It's that God has exhaled this. He's, it's God breathed. And it is Ophelimos. It is profitable profitable. And then it has a list. I love Paul's list in this chapter, a list of the things it's profitable for pros, 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 pros. This word here shows up four times. The four things that the scripture that is God breathed is profitable for real quick. Which scripture is he talking about in context? You've known the writings since you were a little kid. Well, he's not talking about second Timothy, the book, the epistle, second Timothy. He's not talking about the gospel of John. This is in the sixties AD. John probably wrote the gospels later. What's he talking about? He's talking about the Old Testament scriptures. The Old Testament. Wait a second. Even Genesis chapters 1 through 11? Yeah. Yeah, lose that and you don't have the worldview. You don't even know what we're talking about anymore. Every scripture is God-breathed and profitable for didascalia, for teaching. For uh, elegko, elegkos. Uh, reproof. This is a negative word. Teaching is a kind of a general word for me learning something or you telling me something so I learn it. So the scriptures will be useful, profitable, because they're from God, for my, for my teaching and for my reproof. For saying not this way, but this way. A synonym of reproof is correction. For correction. And finally, for paideia, for the instruction of a little child. And we do need to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God and say, he's God, I'm not. In his, in his eyes, I'm just a baby. No matter how much I grow spiritually, I'll be compared to God, be just a little baby. Enjoy it. He's got you. For instruction, paideia, instruction of a child in dikaiosune, in righteousness. Can I give you an example? God is perfectly righteous, and that's a problem for us because of sin. Man is universally sinful and therefore separated from God in his perfect righteousness. God is not going to mix sin with righteousness. There's no mixture. There's an eternal separation and it's really called the lake of fire. That's where history is going. The lake of fire. It is the eternal separation from God's righteousness between God's righteousness and wickedness. So when God tells Israel about the way they're supposed to wear their fabrics, he says, don't wear fabrics that are mixed. No polyester, no linen, no cotton product that's mixed with a wool product. Don't do it. I don't want to see composite fibers in your clothing. And all God's people said, oh, I've got garments that are mixed fabrics. I think it's silk, but maybe it's not silk. That's a whole other question. The worm is an unclean animal. Anyway, what are we supposed to do with this mixed garments? Are we supposed to go around in, in solid linen or solid wool and, and not have mixed garments? First of all, that's God's instruction for national Israel under the covenant that was a theocracy for that time. And Jesus fulfilled that law. Second of all, that is a picture 
that God was showing us, there will be no mixture of wickedness with righteousness. It's solid. God is all of integrity, of a peace and righteousness. It's a picture. It's a portrait. It's for your instruction in righteousness. It teaches you righteousness. You see what I mean? In other words, I can preach a message on not mixing the fabrics in order to show you the issue of God's perfect righteousness and man's sinfulness and how there must be a segregation. And that's a big problem for everybody through the whole Mosaic law is the segregation God is making between Israel and the nations. He's showing you his righteousness. And that theme runs through everything. The whole of the Old Testament is showing you the perfect righteousness of God. And no, it is not immoral for you to wear a blended fabric today. It is not a contradiction of God's righteousness. That for national Israel was a ritual depiction of the distinction. You see what I mean? And so it teaches you the distinction. And if you want to wear solid fabric uh, without mixing like, like poly fabrics or something, because it makes you remember, hey, that's great. Just understand you're not holy for doing it. You're not more of a Christian. Well, I don't wear any polyester. This is the way the word, the word of God works. It instructs us in the perfect righteousness of God. And what that should do with us is say, am I an admixture? Is my life bringing wickedness in the presence of God? Or am I walking with him in the light as he's in the light? And that's a constant reflection on our choices. A constant reflection not on whether my sins are forgiven in Christ and so I'm, I'm, I'm saved forever by the grace of God, and I am. But whether my practice as one who has been bought with the blood of Christ goes in concord with that righteousness that has been imputed to me, declared to my account. Am I walking in righteousness? Am I walking in the light? Or am I walking in personal sin? And the Mosaic law shows you the beautiful, perfect, infinite righteousness of God. The entirety of scripture shows you this. And so I think that that is why he says this to Timothy, that this is what we're really about. Do you, beloved, hunger and thirst after righteousness? Or have you arrogantly said, well, that's the Sermon on the Mount. And that was Jesus speaking to Israel. So you've missed the whole point of God's instruction for our benefit through his teaching Israel. Of course, we need a hunger and thirst after righteousness. And by God's grace and the power of his spirit, we can walk in a manner worthy of our calling. For Galatians 5.16 says, But I say walk by the spirit in dependence on the power of the Holy Spirit, and you will not be able to fulfill the lust of the flesh. And you say, wait a second. Are you telling me I can walk in constant, perfect, sinless perfection? No. I'm saying that when you are walking with God in the power of his spirit, you cannot commit personal sin. And when you do commit personal sin, I promise you, you are not walking in dependence on the Holy Spirit of God. What you need to do about that personal sin is confess it in 1 John 1, 9. And then you need to re-engage and open the scriptures and walk with God according to what he said. Be filled by his spirit to be pleasing to him in all the things that he wants you to do. Because it's not just about getting in the word. Because we don't end in verse 16, we end in verse 17. So that proficient will be the man of God. Not perfect, not telios, not complete. I thought it was complete. It's artios. Proficient. One time this word is used in the whole New Testament. 
Proficient, fit, equipped to do whatever it is. Proficient will be the man of God for every good work equipped. It's a Hebraism. It's almost a, almost a poem. He, ends, he begins with artios and he ends the sentence with exertismenos, which is based on the word artios. You will be proficient because you're equipped. It is not simply, beloved, that you have the word because it's God-breathed and it teaches you God's righteousness. But in teaching you God's righteousness, you are equipped for every good work. Beloved, that's the application of the word of God. That's the doing of the works of God. That is, is not, it's different from the word. I've got the word and I take it in. That was good. Now let me go sit down. Now I'm going to get the word. I'm going to take it in. That was good. I'm going to go sit down. I'm going to get the word. Let me go take it in. Mm, that was good. Now I'm going to go sit down. That's, that's verse 16. I believe everything it says and I'm conformed and I believe in God's righteousness and I want to conform to it. But that's not how life works. We eat a good farmer's breakfast because there's a big harvest to go reap because we've got work to do. Verse 17 is the answer why you need to be in the word because you need to be proficient, equipped for every good work. Sometimes we have to get off the couch and get to work. Our Father, we thank you for the word which is able to build us up and give us the inheritance among all those who are being sanctified. For the word that is God-breathed and profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction, and righteousness. For the word that when we take it in, equips us for every good work that we could be proficient in carrying out that righteousness in our practice. God, we need to be this way. We don't want to just be hearers of the word. We want to be effectual doers of the word because your word is filling us. Your spirit is using that word in us to characterize us with your thinking. Father, help us be this way in everything we do, whether it's at work with our coworkers in the world making a living, or whether it is in our practices when we come together to, to, to share your truth with the world around us. Whatever it is we're doing, Father, we want to do it in your power, according to your righteousness, for your glory. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.